want to look at the overall story that we find in the complete arc of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. I grew up in the church. I am a product of the church, but it wasn't until much later in my life that I realized that this, this library of books, this anthology of stories that we find in the Bible were a bunch of stories that were in support of one story. And it's something that God is authoring, and it's something to really kind of get excited about. And I didn't realize this when I grew up in the church. And so part of what I want to make sure that I do, um, if God has called me to do this, is to make sure that you don't fall into that same trap, okay? I don't want you to, to walk out of church without understanding that there's this magnificent story that God is in the process of writing, and you get to be a part of it. So that's what we're up to with this this, um, this series that we're doing, it's also paralleling a book that we are reading in our small groups called Long Story Short, written by um, a professor up at Oklahoma Wesleyan University uh, that uh, kind of breaks down this meta story, this, this, this large overall story in the scripture. Now, um, that author breaks it down into six parts. I'm going to do four just because it's easier for our sermon planning process, and uh, I'm going to approach it slightly differently than what he does. But at the end of the day, you're going to have this uh, working knowledge of this, this massively beautiful story that the text shares with us. <clears throat> that God is actually up to, and we get to be a part of it. And so the four parts of, of the story that I'm telling um, is going to be creation, fall, redemption, and resolution. Again, I think the author does six. Uh, we're just doing four. And today, I'm going to start with creation. I'm going to start with this particular part of the story. And um, I want to make sure that I say right up front that I am not going to be taking up the issue of evolution. Now, some of you are going to be disappointed, and some of you are going to be very relieved that I don't do that. But I'm not picking up um, the, 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 the debate around evolution directly. And, and largely, the reason why I'm doing that is, is I don't think that 21st century science is all that important to the story that God is writing, Genesis to Revelation. I'm not saying it isn't important to talk about those things. I just don't see how it's important to this overall story, and you're going to see why I say that um, as we go along. Now, even though I don't want to deal with the science, I do want to deal with the text. I want to deal with what we actually find in the scriptural passage, and I want to deal with a little bit of history. Because we have to remember that the text is not written in a vacuum, but there is actually a context that surrounds it. And if you don't understand the context, then you take the text kind of by itself and you isolate it and you end up in some really weird theological positions. And I want to try to avoid that. I want to understand what's happening then and allowing it to speak to our lives today rather than trying to read something into it. So <clears throat> we're going to deal with the text and we're going to deal with some of, the, some of the history. Now, in the ancient Near East, go ahead and bring that map up for me, Jason. Okay, so this is the ancient Near East. Um, it probably looks a little familiar because it's in the news an awful lot these days, isn't it? The, the Near East. And what's fascinating about this is that um, for the longest time, this is considered the cradle of civilization. This is where we find some of the oldest civilizations, the oldest cultures in the world. They're all sort of based out of here. <clears throat> and each one of these um, countries or regions had 
their own religion. And they had um, their own uh, kind of cultural nuances, and they all had creation stories. We need to understand this because all religions at some level deal with the same questions. Where did we come from? What went wrong? And, and, and how do we fix it? All religions deal with that at some level. And so even in the ancient world, all of these regions had their own creation stories. Where did we, where did we come from? And what's so fascinating about this is that there are some similarities between the stories. I wouldn't call them overlap. Overlap is too much, but there's some similarities. There are things that are in one um, account of creation that, boy, that has some striking similarities to the others. So if I start kind of on the upper left-hand corner in what's modern-day Turkey, that would have been the, the Hittite um, uh, culture. And I just read this recently that archaeologically there is a temple that... Um, is one of the oldest well-preserved temples in the history uh, of, 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 of um, uh, archaeology is located there, and it comes out of this Hittite culture. It's interesting. Uh, we also have, what's my next one? Is the next one? Okay, Egypt. So in Egypt, you have this creation story that talks about a god named Nu or Nun, depending on uh, what you're reading. And he has this whole process that he goes through and, and creates um, the world. In fact, what's really interesting is one of the first things he does is he creates land, so he has something to stand on. Kind of interesting, right? Uh, and then we have um, Mesopotamia, which is kind of modern-day Iraq, um, Iran. And uh, the, the culture here is Sumerian, not Sumerian, which we find in the New Testament, but Sumerian. And the Sumerian culture has an entire creation story surrounding a, uh, a god named Marduk, which is just kind of cool to say, Marduk. And uh, Marduk um, battles a dragon named Tiamat. And it's very exciting, and out of that battle comes a whole bunch of things, one of which is the creation of, of the world. So Marduk is, uh, is um, the god of Mesopotamia. Then you have Canaan, where the Israelites eventually landed, and their god is Baal, Baal or Baal, uh, depending on how you choose to pronounce it. Baal is a mountain god. He's a storm god, and part of his story is that he defeated the seas. He defeated the oceans in order to become God. And so you have these narratives, you have these stories from place to place, and what's so fascinating about them is that there are some similarities. Now let me, there's, there's a few of them. I'm going to point out two. I just want you to understand that there's two primary ones uh, that I'm going to be addressing. First is that most of the creation stories um, has... The, the world, the created order, coming out of a battle between chaos and order. So there's this fight that happens, and somehow, through, through that battle, creation occurs. Does this make sense? So there's chaos first, and then there's order. And chaos is almost always described as darkness and the deep. Hello? There we go. Uh, darkness in the deep, meaning water. Now, please understand something here. With all of these cultures, Egypt, Mesopotamia, Canaan, these are not seafaring peoples. And so, consequently, the scariest thing to them is what's happening underneath the water. 
In fact, we even find this in, in, in the Hebrew Bible. Job, which is potentially the oldest material in the Bible, talks about the Leviathan under the deep. So we have this culture, desert peoples, that look at chaos and they, they immediately think in terms of water. Does that make sense? So you have darkness in the deep always characterizing chaos. Order, on the other hand, is usually characterized by light and land. So you don't have to swim. <laughs> okay? So you really have these two features of chaos and order, and they're battling together. And when order comes out of chaos, out of this battle, it's usually involving light and land, standing in contrast to chaos, which is darkness and water. Does this make sense? It's fascinating to read this through, through history. The second feature of all of these creation stories has to do with human beings. The creation of human beings. And the other cultures, um, <clears throat> the ones that we just named, human beings were created one of two ways. One, they were either created by accident, or they were created in order to do all the work that the gods did not want to do. So basically, they created their own slave class, right? I don't want to till the soil. I don't want to do all that. So I'm going to create human beings to do it. And when you, when you think about those religious orders and the way that they created things, that's how human beings were viewed. <clears throat> and so the value of human beings between human beings, you can see how this plays out, that human life is not necessarily as valuable. Does this make sense? So if you're an, either an accident or if you are um, somehow subservient to the gods uh, to do the work that they don't want to do, your value as a human being is less, right? So we have these two very important features. <clears throat> and I, I, think, I think we need to, to address those as we're going on because there's something that's very interesting that happens within our, our own understanding of, of the created order. And so what we do is we open the Bible to Genesis chapter 1. If you have one, I'd suggest that you open it up with me or punch it in, and you can, you can follow along with this. Um, but when, when we open the Bible, the first thing that we, we come to is this very strange um, chapter, chapter 1. Now, it's either a poem or it's a song, and there's some debate among scholars as to really how to classify this piece of literature because it isn't classical Hebrew poetry, and it isn't kind of a, a classical song, and yet there's a structure to it. And, and so there's quite a bit of discussion about that. But one thing, or a couple of things are very, um, are for sure about it. First of all, it is a unique piece of literature that has some poetic um, uh, features to it. And secondly, it is incredibly old. It's very old. And so when we do interpretation of the Bible, one of the things we ask is, what kind of literature is this? What's the genre? This one is really hard to classify, and there's a lot of discussion around it. But we come across this thing, and we, we get this certain feel to it, and it changes abruptly in chapter 2, beginning with verse 4, and now it's no longer this kind of poetic song thing, but it's actually a narrative. And that narrative lasts from 2 until about verse 11 when Abraham comes on the scene. 
And so oftentimes that whole section from 2 until 11 is called hero stories. These ancient hero stories. And by the way, there's other stories throughout the ancient Near East that mirror those same stories. But I'm not talking about those today. We'll talk about those later. For our purposes, we're taking up Genesis chapter 1 and this very strange ancient piece of literature. So let's pick up Genesis chapter 1. Um, here's the first couple of verses. You know this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the, what's the word? Deep, right? Darkness, deep, okay? And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, right? So again, we have this common feature that chaos is really um, characterized by the idea of darkness and deep waters. And of course, this idea of the Spirit of God was hovering is also the breath of God that's hovering over it. And so obviously God is up to something here. And then we begin to see this story of how order is created out of this chaos. Next slide. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Please understand that in Hebrew thought, a day um, began with evening and morning, not morning and evening. Okay, just so that you understand that, there's a reason why it's in that particular order. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now I want you to kind of see what we're, we're building towards something here. So day one <clears throat> is day and night. Now, in the interest of time, so that we're not hammering through all of these things, I've kind of built this for you so that you can see that in day two, he separates water and sky. Okay? And in day three, he separates land uh, or he creates uh, land and flora, vegetation, but he's separating that from the water. Okay, so you have day and night, you have water and sky, and ultimately land that happens in day three. Is this making sense? Okay, you've, you've read this before, right? Really hard to do this one in flannel graph, by the way. So, uh, I think I went through about four or five iterations of just the slides to try to get some kind of picture. So, let's look in the fourth day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be signs and for seasons and for days and years and God made the two great lights the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night now pay very close attention he says rule rule you're going to see this over and over again <clears throat> Uh, and the stars to rule over the day and, and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Now you'll also notice that there's this repeated chorus. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the whatever day it is, right? So in the first sense, what we had was the separation of of light and darkness and here we have some something to rule over the light and darkness next slide so you can see the parallel day and night in day one and in day four sun and moon does this make sense 
Let's go on. Next. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, fish, and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of heavens. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. Remember what he did in day two? Check it out. Here's the slide. Water and sky, fish and birds. There's a pattern here, right? Let's keep going. It gets exciting. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, which probably bugs. I don't know. I'm guessing. Uh, and God saw it was good. Next slide. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Wait a minute. Didn't we just hear that about fish and birds too, right? Next slide. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was, what's the word? Very good. In Hebrew, it's almost as if he's saying, as good as good can be. Kind of a Dr. Seuss take on things, right? <clears throat> and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now look at, look at how this is constructed. Day and night, sun and moon, water and sky, fish and birds, land and vegetation, and then beasts and humans. So on the one hand, the first three days is really about the habitat. It's about the environment that's created. And on the other side, you have the inhabitants of those environments. So you have this God creating order. He's creating a place for his, his creation, and then he's actually filling it with individuals. People to rule, not just people, but things to rule over those. This is an important thing for us to remember. There is an order. There is a structure. And it's all um, kind of supported by this idea of there was evening and there was morning. And it was good. You see this? It's an order that's coming here. The apex of all of this is really humans who are made in the image of God. It's only when human beings are made that he looks and he says, it's very good. Human beings. And then, of course, then we get to chapter 2, verses 1 and 1 through 3. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is repeated three times. Do you think this is important? <laughs> yeah, it kind of is. Anytime God starts doing things in threes, you probably ought to pay attention to it. This is a great, uh, great example of that. And what I find so interesting is at least a couple of scholars have pointed out that the language that's used here is really about a king who sits enthroned over a peaceful kingdom. Let that sink in for a minute. 
The language that's used here, this idea of rest, is really about the enthronement of God over a peaceful kingdom. And so what we end up with is a picture of what was meant to be, this idea of harmony. The Hebrews had a word for it. Do you know what it was? Shalom. It means equilibrium. It means balance. Everything doing what it was supposed to be doing within the created order. And here God is enthroned over it all, this peaceful shalom of a world. It's really a beautiful, beautiful picture. Now, the question that we have to ask ourselves, the question that is the driving question whenever we read The passage of Scripture is simply this. What is the author trying to say? What's the author trying to tell us? Not, what do I want to know? That's not the question. It is, what is the author attempting to say to us when we read this? Because the Bible was not um, written to us, but it was written for us. It was written to a particular people group, but it is still written for us, and we have to keep that in mind. And so the real question is, not what do I want to know from the text, but rather, when we're trying to interpret it, what is that author trying to say to the people that he was writing to and eventually to us? What is the author trying to say? And so I want you to notice a couple of things <clears throat> about this overall narrative, this, this, uh, this poem, this this, I don't know, prose, this song, whatever it happens to be. I want you to notice, first and foremost, there's only one God. There's not a bunch of them. So in all the other stories, you have a God who creates a bunch of other gods. Uh, in, in, in the Egyptian text, he actually spits out the male and he vomits out the female, which is kind of disgusting. But the, the point is, is that there's only one God. It's as if Marie Kondo got a hold of the text and minimalized the whole thing, right? Because you only need one. And it brings you joy. Some of you will get that later. (laughs) Okay. So there's one God, not multiple gods. There's only one here. The second thing I want you to notice is that there's no conflict or battle. There is no chaos fighting against order. There is only chaos and God, one God, speaking order into existence. There's no battle here. There's no conflict. There is no fight. God says it, bam, there it is. That's a big deal. When the rest of the stories that these people would have heard and would have understood shows that there is a fight and that there's constantly good and evil and chaos and order battling each other over and over again, and we don't have that here. We have one God who speaks it into existence, all of the order. And here's the third piece. The creation of humanity is deliberate. It is not an accident. And in fact, it is a reflection, human beings, a reflection of God himself made in the image of God means that Every single person has the imprint of the divine on their soul. They're not slaves. They have infinite value to the Father. 
There's something about that that means that every person that you meet, there's something about them that is truly unique, that is truly divine, that is truly something God-given to them, and so they have value. Everybody, even the person at work you don't like, even the waitress or waiter that gives you lousy service, all of them have infinite value. They're not a mistake. Deliberate. And, and the other thing that I find so amazing is that this idea of dominion, that he gives dominion, the word really means stewardship. So you have God on the throne and human beings as the apex of creation, not to somehow do whatever they please over creation, but rather to steward what God owns, to be co-regents, to rule in his place, to be the representatives of God and the created order. And, and here's the thing, that's never been revoked, ever. That's still the role of human beings, is to be God's hands and feet on this earth. And so you want to talk about value, this is not about the gods up there and human beings down here and oh, woe is us. No, this is God inviting us to be a part of what he's doing. Wow. So there's no accident here. There's no enslavement. This isn't about us doing something that gods don't want to do. This is God saying, mm, no, no, I care about all this. I made all this. I spoke to this order out of the chaos and I want you and you and you and you and you and all of you to be a part of this thing that I'm doing. That doesn't get you out of the bed in the morning. I don't know what does. That is, that is an, an immense project for us to be a part of. We get to be, we get to be a part of this. We're invited to be part of God's reign on earth, to care for it and do something with it. It's not until Genesis chapter 2 that we realize that we're here to care and cultivate this. But at the beginning, it's this idea of stewardship, that we really have a part to play in all of the created order. So is this about dinosaurs and fossils? I don't, I don't think so. I think the author is trying to tell us something about the nature and the goodness of God. Because remember, when, when this is penned, when this is written down, when this is given to to Moses, and, and Moses compiling all of these things together, it's the generally the accepted author of, or compiler of, of Genesis. What he's ultimately saying is Yahweh is different. Yahweh is different from all of these other gods that you've heard of, the ones that you, you had to deal with in Egypt and the ones that you may have heard of in Mesopotamia, even the country you're going to, Canaan, that God, Yahweh is different from all of them. And I think that the other piece of this is that humanity is not an accident or, or enslaved to anything, but rather, here is your identity. You are a steward of the Most High God, and you are invited to be part of this project that he has. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. And of course, there's these important relationships between habitats and inhabitants and between human beings and the rest of creation around us and, of course, the relationship that we have with God, the Father, who is the king over his peaceful kingdom. Oh, and by the way, how important do you think a day of rest is to a slave population? Think about that for a moment. 
Oh, by the way, you're going to work six days, but you get seven days off. Mm, Pharaoh not going to do that. In fact, Pharaoh will make you work seven and make you work more hours during the day, too, in order to meet the quota. This God is different. Yahweh is different. And this becomes the backdrop for the entire rest of the story. The entire narrative from Genesis all the way to Revelation deals with this idea of shalom at the very beginning. Order and peace and rest stand against chaos. God has so much more for us. And here's the thing. The intention of God at the moment of creation has never changed. Now, of course, we know the story, and we'll pick it up again next week. Something happens. And we have to deal with that too. But for today, when you walk out of here, Yahweh is different. And you have infinite value to Him. <laughs>